Welcome to the Desert City Church podcast. What you're about to hear is a sermon given at one of our Sunday gatherings. We invite you to listen to how the story of Scripture is forming our new church. We are currently in a series entitled Desert City Originals, and we're talking about our vision, DNA, and dreams as a church. We're almost three years in, and we feel like we're just getting started. And our hope is that this message will help you become more like Jesus. As you pursue God, may you find your true self. If you have any questions or things we can pray for, let us know. Grace, peace, and much love. You can open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. All right, so there is an obscure story. It's a book in the Old Testament, and it's found in a section called the Minor Prophets. And it's about a man who was told by God to take for himself a wife who was a promiscuous woman. And the man's name is Hosea, and the woman's name is Gomer. And she's as lovely as her name sounds, right? (laughs) Gomer. If you're thinking about having a baby soon and you need a woman's name, Gomer works great. But it's kind of a, like a heartbreaking and even frustrating story. And as the story kind of unfolds, what we find is that Gomer is uh, unfaithful to her, her husband. And God tells Hosea to go back, to continue to pursue her, to continue to forgive her. To con- and you're reading it and you're like, why? Why would this happen? But then you start realizing that this is a story about uh, a man who is a prophet by God, called by God to give a message to his people. And as you start to read, read the story, you start realizing that it's, it's a story that's taking place, but then something else is unfolding in this story. This is an example of, of God and his relationship with Israel in the Old Testament. There's this story of this, this God who has set up a covenant with his people, and his people keep, uh, his people leave, his people Uh, go to other gods, his people turn away, his people become promiscuous. And God continually pursues them, chases after them. As you start to read the story, especially the the first people who are reading it and seeing the whole thing unfolding, they would have started to realize that, oh, this isn't just a story of a prophet and his wife, this is is actually a story story of us and our relationship to God and and the narrative It it alternates between the story of Hosea and Gomer and God and Israel. And you start to realize that God's telling the story of how even though we've walked away, he's chased after us. And even though we've made decisions that bring about destruction in our lives, he's pursued us. You start to find ourselves in this story. It's a very powerful way of, of God to get the attention of his people. First part of the book narrates the family of Hosea. It's symbolic to convey the message of the prophet that this is the same thing that's happening between God and his people Israel. Last week, we started a series and we started talking about some of the big narrative themes of Scripture. And we looked at the creation story. We talked about how we were created in the image of God. And God said that humanity was good. We are the Imago Dei. God looks at us as the special part of creation humanity and he loves us and he cares about us but here we are later on in the new old testament going through hosea and we find that something's happened to god's people 
Like, at first we're being compared to, you know, we're made in the image of God, but at this point we're being compared to this promiscuous woman named Gomer. At some point, something's happened. We, we go from the Imago Day to Gomer. And there's this reminder that we are image bearers, yet something has gone dreadfully wrong in this story. Something's gone dreadfully wrong in this story. There's a rebellion that happens. And this is something that, as Christians, we look at the world and we see all the brokenness, and like we've codified it. We've said the, the creation has been broken at some point. And oftentimes this is very much the message of, of the church is that the world is broken. But we're reminded that the story starts with the creation. It starts with us being created in the image of God. But then we've moved on in the story till this brokenness happens. And I want to look at kind of like, how, do we, how does that happen? What, where did we go from image of God to Gomer? God's people to a promiscuous people. The first story that starts to explain this takes place in Genesis chapter 3. This is a story that most of you are very familiar with, a story that uh, you've probably heard even if you haven't grown up in church. But I just want to read through the details because the human rebellion, the story of the human rebellion starts with a lie, with a lie about how the world works. If you go back to the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3, just read through this story, starting verse 1. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had made. The serpent, so a snake. This is kind of the antagonist in the story, the evil one, the devil. And he said to the woman, Eve, Did God really say, You must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. Well, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. So when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, maybe. <laughs> Here's the man's response. He says, the woman, the woman you put here with me, she gave me the fruit from the tree. The woman you put here with me, she gave me the fruit from the tree and I ate it. And then the Lord said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent. The serpent deceived me and I ate. The serpent deceived me and I ate. 
It's funny because this reads as a children's story, right? Uh, it reads as a children's story that I could tell a little Micah and Sophia and Ezra and they would get it. And yet there's an unbelievable depth to what's going on here as the story unfolds. I feel like this story kind of unfolds in my house every single night when we're putting our kids to bed, to be honest. <laughs> but it's, it's a simple story. It seems fairly innocent, and yet at the same time, it's tragic. The story starts with a deception. What happens? The humans are deceived. The humans become disobedient. The humans try to find fulfillment in something outside of God that they're supposed to stay away from. What is it inside of them that does this? I remember when I was in Sunday school, when I was younger, it was probably in like second or third grade, I was in this class with a bunch of kids my age, and our Sunday school teacher came in, and she was actually teaching on this story, and uh, we, were, we were sitting in this round table, and there's probably seven or eight of us there, and she had an apple, and she goes, I'm going to put this right in the middle of the table, I don't want anyone to touch it. She sets the apple down, and all of us bolt to try to grab the apple. The girl next to me gets it. And we're all sitting there like, the teacher's like, I just told you not to grab it. Like, what in the world? And she's like, I had to touch it. I, we all were like, I don't know what it is inside of us. It's, it's like there's this rebellious gene or something that starts coming out in an early age. This is what I'm experiencing in my house right now. It's like Lord of the Flies, if you've ever read that. Like, we can't leave our kids alone. They'll turn on each other. They turn on us. It's chaos all the time. There's something, like, inside of them that, like, just causes them to, like, want to like terrorize each other and their parents and I don't know what it is but there's this thing that is inside of us this this rebellious gene right where does that come from what in the world is going on here we start using kind of words to codify what this means and one of the words that we've identified is this word called sin and sin comes with a lot of baggage in our culture when you hear the word sin Oh, that's a word that churches use to judge others. That's a word that hypocrites use. Like sin, oh, that's a heavy... A, some of the thing, when, I, when I think of the word sin, you know, I think of like Dana Carvey's character from Saturday Night Live, right? Church Lady. Have you guys ever seen Church Lady calling people a sinner? Probably the best episode ever is when she plays the drums. But like we, we, like we have this in our mind, like sin, oh, this is this thing that like the church always calls out like that the world has and, and it just sounds so self-righteous and like what is th what is this thing called sin what is sin what does it mean how do we define what sin is I want to talk about this rebellious gene comes from this idea of sin today and I hope that you'd be open to why it's important to talk about and I hope that you would be able to, to hear from this passage in a way that you're able to not bring baggage from the past to this story. Or maybe the past ways that you've been like a judge or accused of it. A really helpful definition of this word sin I found from a theologian and author Cornelius Plantinga. He defines sin as this. Culpable disturbance of shalom. Culpable disturbance of shalom. Oftentimes we think, you know, oh, sin is just evil. There's this evil. Yes, that's part of it. But culpable disturbance of, of shalom, there's more going on here in this story. You've often heard maybe that sin comes from an archery term. Uh, an archery term of when you're shooting towards a target and you miss the target. When you miss the target, it's called a sin. You've missed miss the target that you're shooting for. 
I love this idea, though, of the, the culpable disturbance of shalom. Shalom is a Hebrew word, most often translated as peace or wholeness. Shalom means health or blessing, harmony as God intends it for our world. Shalom is found in the Garden of Eden. Last week, we talked about this story of how God creates things and it's good and there's this rhythm to how the world works and man's created for relationships, relationships with God, relationships with each other. There's this inner relationship. So there's a spiritual dimension. There's a social dimension. There's this emotional dimension. Then there's this physical relationship with us and the creation around us. And in the Genesis story, there is shalom in those relationships. We're created to be at peace with our maker. Shalom is the harmony that God desires for this world. A disturbance. If it's a culpable disturbance of shalom, a disturbance is when things are not as they should be. A disturbance is something that comes in and disrupts. We're very aware of disturbances in our sleep, right? It's something that's frustrating for us. When you have four children, you get disturbed every night multiple times a night. Disturbance is something that comes and it throws off the schedule, it throws off the way things are made to be. Culpable. Culpable is a responsibility. Someone who is responsible for something. There's like a guilt that is involved. You've contributed to the disturbance of the shalom around you. And I like this idea because sin is anything that we do that disrupts the peace and harmony God desires in this world. So sometimes we're, you know, it's, it's easy to say, like, you know, sinning's, you know, it's someone who will drink, smoke, or chew, or go with girls who do. Or, you know, sin's always easy to identify in other people. But to think of sin as something that just disrupts the shalom, the harmony that God intends this world means that anybody at any moment is capable of doing it. Sometimes it's something that's outward and it's obvious to see, and other times it's something that's internal or small. Pride can be something that disrupts harmony. So we define sin as something that disrupts the harmony that God has created. We also have to ask, why is it so destructive? How is it so destructive? The first thing that it does is that it buys into a lie. We look at this story. This rebellion starts with a lie. Here's what sin does. It is, it's something that promises but doesn't deliver. It's something that promises but doesn't deliver. And this is a haunting lie that has happened from the creation of the world God's holding out on us. There's something better. Or if I just have this certain thing in my life, then I'll be happy. If I could just get to this place, this situation, this circumstance, this relationship, this object, if I could just get it, then all of my problems will be solved and I'll be happy. This is a haunting lie that we still buy into every single day. Oftentimes we order our whole life around chasing this thing that always promises and never delivers. Oftentimes it starts very subtle. 
Other times it's very powerful. I think this is especially true in our culture here in North Phoenix. We live in a, a world of, of very confusing messages. We live in a very materialistic world. I, I get it. We're a material girl living in a material world, and I'm a guy living with that song too. Like I, I get all of that. Like we, we have all of these messages that are sent us every single day about what we need to be happy in life, what we need to be fulfilled. It's so hard not to buy in that lie. We just compare lives to the people around us. We pursue all sorts of different things. And then we get it, and we realize it hasn't fulfilled us. We get there and realize it was a lie. It hasn't delivered on its promise. One of the greatest theologians back in the fourth century was Augustine of Hippo from North Africa. Really interesting to study his life. He was a complete hedonist early on in life, total party animal. It's like he could in the fourth century. I don't know what that looked like. Uh, indulged everything that he possibly could. Then he gets to this moment where he realizes that nothing has delivered on his promises. Gives his life to God. Writes this book called Confessions. Starts talking about all these things that he pursued and chased after in life. The apple of his eye that he would go after and it wouldn't deliver. He finally comes to this realization that our hearts are restless in this world. And they're restless until they rest in God. I don't know if you've been following the story of Jim Carrey in real life. Um, Jim Carrey has gone from hilarious comedian to super depressed, somewhat bizarre, crazy artist. He was recently on the news uh, at some of the award show Marcy was showing me, and he was talking about how the, the world works and how nothing is real. And, and like, you're like, oh my goodness, what has happened to this man? I watched another documentary on him, and he's at this art studio, and he's painting, and he just paints for like 16 hours straight. He's got paintings all over the studio. He just sits there painting. Like, this is a man who's extremely successful, rose to the top in his industry, and like, you, you hear from him now, and you hear interviews from him, and you're like, wow, this guy's like lost his mind. He, Jim Carrey has this famous quote. He says, I wish everyone become rich and famous. I wish everyone could, could experience what I've experienced because then they'd realize that that's not the answer. He's a soul that is just tormented by some sort of darkness, even though he has everything. There's a lie that's been told from the very beginning. And the lie is we're missing out on something. If we can get it, our lives will be better. We pursue all sorts of things in this world that are apart from God. And yet they don't deliver. We indulge. We strive. We make decisions that are destructive to get it. And it doesn't deliver. For Adam and Eve, if you could just have this fruit, your eyes would be open and you'd be enlightened. They pursue it. The second thing that sin is destructive is because it blames. What does Adam do? God asks him, did you take the fruit? The first thing he does is he points the finger at Eve. This woman that you gave me, she's the one that led me astray. We blame. Sin is something that, that we talked last week about how we're called to be responsible with the creation. Well, sin takes the opposite approach. I'm no longer taking responsibility, but it's never my fault. It's someone else. We're joking about how uh, 
when, when Christy and Steve Skiba came in, uh, Steve was like, we're late today, it's her fault. We're joking, like, newlyweds, you know, like, we all, <laughs> that was sinful. No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes it's, it's, it's funny where we're, we're using it, where we, we're like, ha, ha, ha. And then other times it gets, like, really, like, this is the reason I am the way I am, because this person has done this to me. Right? There's, there's different levels of blame. The sin has a way of us becoming very suspicious of other people around us. We stop believing the best. We start pointing the finger. We become suspicious people. It divides us. Sin has a way of corrupting communities, corrupting families, dividing relationships. We stop taking responsibility. Eve, Eve says that the serpent the serpent did this to me. It's his fault. The devil made me do it. My wife makes an unbelievable dessert called Devil Made Me Do It. We point fingers and we blame others for our problems. Sin has a way of disrupting unity and harmony. The third thing is sin causes us to hide. Sin causes us to hide. What's so interesting in the story is you read the details Adam's hiding from God, hiding in the trees. And here we have God showing up and saying, where are you? And it's such a, I, I think it's such a powerful, profound statement that God would ask that question because we know that God knows everything. We know that God is omniscient, and we know that God is everywhere. And yet here's Adam hiding from God and God pursuing him saying, where are you? God is in search of Adam in the midst of what Adam's doing. I think this is, is a, good, a good thing to consider when it comes to our lives. Times where we feel like we're hiding from God. Because in this moment where Adam makes this mistake, we don't find God turning his back on Adam. We find Adam turning his back on God. We find God searching for Adam. We find God pursuing Adam. We read through the story of Hosea and Gomer, what we find is God there, hoping, wanting, desiring, pursuing. There's consequences for your actions, but there God is asking, where are you? God is in search of man. We hide from God. We also hide from each other, something that isolates us, something that divides us. Sin is something that oftentimes we try to hide. And we think, well, it doesn't really, you know, I've got this sin over here, and it doesn't really affect anyone else, and I know it's wrong, and I know it's something that's not good for my soul, and it's corrupting me, but, but it doesn't really affect anyone else. It always has a way of dividing you from other people. It's a tricky thing. It gets inside of you. It separates you. You're not able to live honestly, openly. I uh, am a pastor's kid. A PK, which means uh, there's a stigma about PKs, right? If you're a PK, if you're a pastor's kid, you're probably rebellious. Marilyn Manson, pastor's kid, right? And so, like, you know, if you're a PK, you're probably going to rebel, and, you know, and then everyone's going to say, like, man, your dad, your dad, you know, your family's a pastor. like, how did you end up the way that you ended up? And so, like, I grew up kind of, like, with a spotlight on me, and 
never really had this like outward rebellion. It was never like, I gotta stick it to the man, you know, I gotta like go find myself. I never like had that inside of me. And yet, like I've always had like this, you know, rebellious gene inside of me, this the way that everyone else would. Comes out in different ways. For me, it's I get real dark, depressed. Never like chronically, you know, diagnosed with depression. But know that this is something inside of me. I tend to get really dark. I tend to believe the worst in people. I become a cynic. I become very depressed. I was meeting with my counselor one time and talking about how, like, you know, what are things that I struggle with? And, you know, I, he's like, I never like went out and partied and went out and, you know. But at the same time, there's this rebellion, but my rebellion is always like inward. Like, deep inside of me, there's this darkness that I, I can hide from everyone else. There's a depression that corrupts my own soul. And even now, can rob my family of joy. Those are things I identified that my rebellion wasn't outward, it was inward. That robs me from being in the presence of people when I go dark. Robs me from joy in my family. It always has a way of manifesting itself in different ways. We hide sin. We hide uh, the ways that Satan tries to take footholds in our life. As we read this story, what we find is that we're all susceptible to it in different ways. It comes out in different places. Sometimes it's outward. Sometimes it's inward. It causes us to hide. I love what this uh, Old Testament scholar, D.R. Davies, says about this idea of when the world gets broken. He says, now in history, we have to face the fact that the human race, through individuals composing it, has willed itself out of the subordinate relationship to God, with the fatal result that every individual becomes his own center. Since we are all alike in wanting to be our own center, we are irrevocably divided from one another. United we sin, we become disunited in everything else. This is the brilliant mess in which humanity finds itself because especially the progressive civilized humanity of today. And that was written in 1942. Midst of World War II, right? United we sin, we become disunited in everything else. And this is the brilliant mess in which we find ourselves in. So we talk about this idea of sin. Sin comes with all sorts of baggage. And, and what's interesting is... We, in scripture, when we start talking about sin, there's always like a holding a mirror to your own face. Oftentimes, it's easy to point that out in other people. But being able to identify it in ourselves, now that's the tricky thing. We're always worried about other people, right? So we read Genesis 4, if we continue through this story. Genesis 4, all of a sudden, it goes from like a children's story to like something that I can't even talk to my children about. Adam and Eve have kids, Cain. Enable. And maybe you know that story. One of them becomes a farmer. One of them becomes a shepherd. They're called to give uh, offerings back to God. One pleases God. One doesn't. Cain becomes jealous of his brother Abel. We know how the story goes. Let me remind us in verse 6 of chapter 4. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right... Sin, and this is the first time the word sin is actually used, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, 
but you must rule over it. It talks about sin as this thing that is crouching at our door and it desires to have us. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked Abel and he killed him. And then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied, as a lie. Am I my brother's keeper? Passing blame. The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. It's a tragic story. I mean, so, so sin is this thing that, that kind of enters into the world with this little white lie about a fruit, and within one chapter we have brothers murdering each other. There's this progression to sin when it goes unchecked in our own life. Culpable disruption of the harmony as God intends in this world. Culpable disruption of shalom. We go from taking a fruit to murder. And here we have this crazy phrase where, where, where God is saying, your brother's blood is crying out from the ground. He is gone, and yet there's something loud resounding from this act that it's God's, God, God's attention. How do we move so quickly to something that's so disruptive and destructive? This is what happens when sin crouches at our door. It talks about it as this, this almost this personification or, 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 or this creature that tries to destroy us in this world. God says you must master it. The story goes from a little white lie to brothers killing each other in the next chapter. So what do we do with this? What? Okay, it's it's obvious. We we look out the world today. You watch the news and you realize there's brokenness. This isn't what God's intent is for the world. Harmony has been disrupted. What do we go? What do we do? What do we do with our sin? If you continue to read through the story, what we'll find is that God is very in tune with what's going on in this world. He's very involved. And he wants to do something about it. The story of Scripture is a story of how God enters into this mess and seeks the destruction of sin and death to bring about restoration and life and hope. And here's a central belief of the church. Is that in the midst of our brokenness, God loves us in the midst of the ways that we disrupt the harmony of the world. God loves us. No matter who we are, what we've done, God is searching for us with a question he asks Adam. Where are you? He's pursuing us. I like the way one person says it. He says, God loves us exactly as we are. And yet at the same time, he loves us way too much to leave us as we are. And that should be good news. We've gone from the Imago Day to Gomer, but God has this desire for us to return to the Imago Day. We're made in the image of God. So the work 
of God in our life is to take care of the things that are broken, but invite us back into a life where we reflect his image. He loves us exactly as we are, but loves us way too much to leave us this way. Over the next few weeks, we'll be talking about some of these big themes of how God goes about this restoration. But it's important to note that this idea of us being rebellious and sinful isn't the first word that's said about humanity. The first word that's said about humanity is in Genesis 1 and 2. We're created in the image of God. We're unique. God loves us. We're special. The brokenness is only the second word that's used to describe the human condition. And I think it's important to start with that first word to realize there's something about humanity that's unique. And yet there's also something about humanity that's gone terribly wrong in this story. So here's something that God's people have done. It's an ancient practice. Yet I think in it there is great healing and hope. It's a practice of confession. It's a practice of confession. Oftentimes, when this word sin is used in the church, it's us pointing out sin in other people. And yet, throughout Scripture, what we find is God's people being in tune with their own brokenness. One of the greatest authors of the New Testament says that he's the worst of all sinners. And yet at the same time, there's something redemptive about that confession. There's a couple things that God's people would do. Is this, this practice of confession is this. It's owning up to reality. It's owning up to reality. It's no longer hiding. It's coming out in the open. It's no longer blaming. It's taking responsibility. It's no longer lying. It's truth-telling. And as we close our time today, I want to do two practices of confession. I'm not going to have you get up and talk about it, that's for sure, right? The first thing is an individual time of confession. An individual time of confession. We're going to take a moment to just reflect on some of our own brokenness, some of the things that are heavy on our heart, that, that some of the things that we know are, are dark inside of our soul. And quietly in prayer, communicate with God those things. And then we're going to do a corporate confession, a practice that the church has done for years and years and years, where we stand up and actually proclaim that as a community, there's things that we need to fix. And then from there, we're going to move to a time of communion. We end each week with communion. Communion is uh, something sacred about our story, for us, communion represents God's plan of redemption. We take two elements, bread and juice. The bread represents the body of Christ, which is broken open for us. The juice represents the blood of Christ, which is poured out for us. When we take these uh, elements, it's symbolic of what God has done in this world when he died on the cross for us. So after this time of confession, we invite you to the table when you're ready to remember and to proclaim the story of redemption that we're all part of.
So Tim's going to come back up. And I want you to do this. This is something a little bit different. But there's a psalm of confession, Psalm 32. I want to take some time just to sit in silence. When it comes to some of your own things that you're dealing with, maybe it's internal, maybe it's external, uh, maybe it's heavy, maybe it's light. I'm not sure where you're at. But to spend some time reflecting. And I want to just read this prayer of confession and allow it to kind of guide our personal uh, individual confession. And then we'll stand and read the corporate. Let's pray. Lord, we read this story that takes place long ago. And yet it's our story, Lord. It takes place every single day. We pursue contentment outside of you. We believe certain lies and narratives of where true life is found. And it divides us, causes us to blame each other, become suspicious of each other. It affects the harmony that you created this world to be. It's disruptive. Lord, in, in, your, in your scripture, we find that your people, are, they're aware of this. They're in tune with it. And they want something to be done about it. Lord, in the story, we find that you do something about it. So we come to you today. We ask that you would uh, just do like a root canal of our soul. Get in deep move things that are disrupting our harmony, that are corrupting our lives, the different narratives that we believe that are false, the different things that we do that harm others, things that have been done to us that are harmful. We give this to you now, Lord. Psalm 32. It says, when I kept it all inside, my bones turned to powder. My words became day-long groans. The pressure never let up. All the juices of my life dried up. But then I let it all out. I said, I'll make a clean breast of my failures to God. And suddenly the pressure was gone. My guilt dissolved, my sin disappeared. These things add up. Every one of us needs to pray. And when all hell breaks loose, when the dam bursts, we'll be on high ground, untouched. Church, if you'd rise with me, and let's proclaim the words on the screen, this corporate confession. Almighty and most merciful Father, we are thankful that your mercy is higher than the heavens, wider than our wanderings, deeper than our sin. Forgive our careless attitudes toward your purposes, our refusal to relieve the suffering of others, our envy of those who have more than we have, our obsession with creating a life of constant pleasure, our indifference to the treasures of heaven, 
our neglect of your wise and gracious law. Help us to change our way of life so that we may desire what is good, love what you love, do what you command through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. When you're ready, feel free to move to the table and partake in the element.